With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives. All while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Yomi Adegake, your host for season three of the Women's Prize podcast. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests for 2021 and I guarantee you will be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Each bookshelfy episode, we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five different books by women. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Bookshelfie. I'm Yomi Adegoke and I'm absolutely thrilled to be your host for Series 3, where I'll be lucky enough to be interviewing some incredible women about the work of other incredible women. I'm excited to tell you that this year's shortlist is out and the six brilliant authors and their books can all be found on our website, www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk. We are still practicing safe social distancing and this podcast is being recorded remotely. Today's guest is the iconic fashion designer, Diane von Furstenberg. Diane is best known for her groundbreaking wrap dress, which came out in 1974 and earned her global recognition, becoming a wardrobe staple around the world. It's still worn by celebrities, including Michelle Obama and Catherine, Duchess of Cambridge. She's one of the world's most successful fashion entrepreneurs and was chairwoman of the Council of Fashion Designers of America for 13 years. She was also named by Forbes and Time magazine in their most powerful women and 100 icons lists in 2014 and 2015. But her impact goes well beyond clothing and cosmetics. Diane is also a keen philanthropist and a role model for female empowerment. Her foundation, The Diller, is the force behind the DVF Awards, which celebrate female leaders. She's part of Sheryl Sandberg's Bam Bossy campaign, and she even designed shirts for Hillary Clinton's presidential bid. Deanne's also been sharing her own secrets to success to help other aspiring leaders, and her new book, Own It, encourages readers to embrace their imperfections to achieve personal and professional growth. Welcome, Deanne, to the podcast. It's an honour. Hello. How has your day been? Uh, My day today, it's been... uh... Hectic, but uh, but good. I mean, it's it's a beautiful day. It just rained a little bit, but now the sun is out, and I'm in the country, and I am working, and uh, and I'm talking to you. Oh, sounds nice. Sounds very nice. And speaking more broadly, how would you say you have found the last year? It's been quite a difficult year in terms of lockdown and of course the coronavirus crisis. How has it been for you personally trying to navigate that? Well, I am, um, you know, I'm very lucky and very privileged because I have a house with a, with a big garden. So I was home. I actually took uh, the opportunity of this, you know, forced pause to to do, I worked on uh, many things and I worked on this book. I worked on, and I think the fact this, you know, this forced pause has given this book more, um, maybe a little bit more depth because we were in this moment of reflection. And so hopefully it, it came out better than if I had written it in a normal time. Mm. And I mean, I'm looking forward to discussing a bit more about your book later. Congratulations on it. Um, But I also wanted to talk about the fact that you once said, at least in an article that I read, that you'd considered becoming a librarian. 
have you always been somebody with a keen interest in books and reading? Yes, yes, yes. I love, love books. I, I never played with dolls because I love books. I didn't know what I would do growing up. And somebody told me I could be a librarian, but I really didn't like the librarian in my school. So that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't an option. But I love books and I've always loved books. Mm. I mean, you're also an incredibly busy woman. I mean, you you said, as, as you mentioned, today's been very hectic. I imagine that most days are hectic. So do you manage to find the time to read as much as you'd like to? Well, that's a good question uh, because, uh, you know, read. Uh, one of the things that I have discovered, and I don't know if you will like that, but I have discovered audiobooks. And so I can, you know, listen to a book while I'm driving or while I'm exercising, or when I'm in the bath, or when, you know, and I find that uh, very helpful. Deanna, I don't like that. I love that. I'm a very big audiobook listener oh, myself. Okay, <laughs> yes. Some people, some people don't at all. Yes, and I listen to audiobooks whenever I can, because it's the only way I can fit it in my schedule. It's good to multitask, as you said, in the shower, cleaning, writing, doing whatever. It's. I think it's great. Exactly. So, one thing that I noticed in terms of the books that you chose as your bookshelfies today is that every last one is nonfiction, which is very interesting. Are you not an avid reader of fiction or do you read fiction? Oh, oh, oh. No, I do read fiction. It is true that I do like uh, biographies, mm. yes, but it's, it's really an accident. Mm. I mean, of course I read fiction, but I read... I guess I read less fiction now. Mm. Well, your choices are excellent, regardless of them being fiction or non-fiction, and we're going to get right to them now. So your first bookshelfie book is A Life, a memoir by Simone Vale. Yes. Can you tell me who Simone Vale is and what about her life inspires you? Okay, well, C Simone Vale was a politician in France. She was minister many times. The reason that I wanted to read her memoir is because she had she was about the same age as my mother, and she had uh, the same uh, journey as my mother. She was uh, in Auschwitz, um, and she was a survivor. She she did the death march, and so did my mother. So I was interested in reading that because you know. Survival have survivors have many mm -hmm. things in common. Thank you so much, Diane. And I mean, your mother surviving Auschwitz, the concentration camp, must have hugely impacted your own upbringing and sense of identity. Exactly, exactly. You've spoken about you know survival and you know the story of Simone and your mum and how you know those have inspired your idea of survival. And um, I was watching your masterclass and you're talking about you know, arriving in America with um, two suitcases and, you know, essentially just a lot of a lot of confidence, a lot of grit. But that was it, really. How did you, I suppose, how did you have that sort of spirit of survival? Well, I, I, I don't want you to misunderstand. I did not arrive with two suitcases mm. as a refugee. Not at all. By the time I arrived, I had already married Aegon. I arrived in... in in New York as a princess, but I did have two suitcases full of the little dresses that I, actually it was only one, one suitcase 
full of dresses mm-hmm. that I had designed. Of course, I did feel that I was coming to America, so I related mm-hmm. to the refugees, and my parents were refugees, and even though I was a princess, I still wanted to be independent, and that's why I started to work, and that's why mm-hmm. I had brought my suitcase. And was I confident? I don't know that I was confident. I became confident as as I became successful, and I was very lucky to be successful yes. very early. Um, so I don't know that I actually came mm. in with confidence, but I came in with something that it, that will will have brought me confidence. Absolutely, and I think I I suppose I mean that survival that's required in I suppose you know a country sort of as you know such as America and uh, an industry as cutthroat as um fashion and design it's not necessarily the easiest industry to navigate um so I was just interested and I suppose what kept you going throughout the years in terms of you know because you mentioned that you had lots of successes but also lots of knockbacks and I suppose that sense of survival and and continuing despite the um failures that um you you did experience how important were female role models to you? I was raised by a mother who always told me that to be a woman was lucky. When she would refer to the men, she would say, les pauvres, you know, oh, she felt sorry for men. So I wasn't, I wasn't raised by a mother who felt uh, overpowered by men. She always made me feel that that was such a privilege and uh, and that we were stronger and things like that. I worked as really interns my for other people, but really uh, I started to work on myself very early on. So I didn't have the glass ceiling and all of that. I was I was an entrepreneur. I worked for myself, which means it's mm. often much harder because you know you have all of the responsibility. But I personally didn't have. So I was a feminist. I mean, I was naturally a feminist. And uh, and that leads into the second one, the Simone de Beauvoir, you know, who, you know, who was very much a feminist of, of she was married to, or I don't even know if she was married, but she lived with um, Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre. And so, you know, it was about in, intellectual and writer and existentialist and philosopher. So... I really admire that. And she was dealing, you know, she wrote about the women oppression and and all of that. So that leads into my, mm. you know, my second book. And I, so I guess that that's how I became a feminist and how I became um, interested into mm. women's rights. Thank you so much, Diane. We're going to just now go into your second book, Shelfie, which is, as you mentioned, The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. First published in 1949. When did you first read it? Oh my God! You know, to tell you the truth, I don't remember having read it mm-hmm. all in one shot. I, you know, you study it and you analyze it, and you, and you know, it just had, it just had an impact. The book had an impact. The words were an impact. But she, the woman, had so much impact mm. as well. So how do you remember, you know, you mentioned studying it and not necessarily sitting down and reading it at one time, but it very much influencing you. Um, How did it affect your understanding of the world and sex and gender and life as a woman? Well, it's about the freedom also, about not being overpowered by a man. 
not be, you know, uh, but just be an equal. It's it's all about equality. And as you mentioned, you know, you married into German royalty in 1969, but immediately set out pursuing your own career and being independent. Was this a conscious thing, you know, a conscious feminist decision or just, you know, an innate desire for you to be your own independent person? Yeah, I always wanted that. I always wanted that. And my mother always pushed me to be independent. So I I, I can't even remember, even when I was a young girl and I would write short stories, I would, I would, my character would always be the mistress and not the (laughs) wife. You know, she was, she was, uh, she was the independent one. Mm -hmm. And was that, you know, you said that your mum was always big on independence. It's something you always wanted. Do you ever remember anyone sort of saying the opposite to you, Um, especially once, you know, you'd married into royalty and were literally a princess? No, no, no. no, Oh, no one was ever like, you should just stay in your lane and not, not being. Okay, well, that's very lucky. (laughs) (laughs) You hung out at Warhol's Mm -hmm. Studio 54 in the 70s. And did you see the kind of feminism that, de Beauvoir spoke of reflected in that space at all? Well, when I came to New York, when I came to New York was very much the time of sex liberation and women's lib. And that leads into the third book, which is Gloria Steinem. I mean, the people, the women who were my idols were Angela Davis, you know, the Black Panther and, 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 and Gloria Steinem especially. And what I loved about Gloria Steinem is that she was such an advocate for women and everything, and yet she was a beautiful woman, and she was seductive, and she was, and I love that. Mm-hmm. You're doing my job for me. I appreciate it. We're now onto the third bookshelf, as you mentioned, um, which is My Life on the Road by Gloria Steinem. Um, you've just mentioned what it was that you love about Gloria. Yes. And I love also the fact that she never takes herself seriously, mm-hmm. even though she has had such an effect on on generations of women. And this particular book that I mentioned, The Journey, what I like about it is that she describes the journey. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when you reach the end of your life, as I am now, you look at your life and it is a journey. And her journey was, was extraordinary. And I don't know, actually, if you, you should read, you should watch the book, The Glorious, no, the movie. Mm. And uh, that's what, you know, came out of this book. And, uh, and the journey of her life, you know, and uh, she's completely a free woman and, She's completely independent, but she remained a woman. She was never belittled. She she has a great sense of humor, and uh, she doesn't take herself seriously. And yes, she's so serious. So, how involved are you with the second wave of feminism? And did you and Gloria ever meet or ever know each other? Oh yes, yes. Oh no, no. I've been. I was very involved. She and I have become intimate friends. Oh. And uh, last year or two years ago, I got the highest uh, woman's award you can get. It's the Women Fa- Hall of mm. Fame of, of women. She gave me the award. I've given her the, and I joked one, one, one time, 10 years ago, uh, she asked me to give her an award. So I was, I, of course I accepted. And then as I was in the room about to give her the award, I remembered that 
you know, when I came to New York, I was a princess because I had married a prince. But then I separated, and it is the time that she invented this magazine called Ms. Mm. Ms. And therefore, she invented the word Ms. And I, when I gave her the award, I told the story that I was actually happy to give up my title of princess to be Miss. <laughs> I love that. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, Gloria was very much a, an attractive woman. Um, and that that's often a conversation in feminism about, you know, um, women's value in terms of appearance and how that affects the feminist movement. Um, you've made really interesting comments about plastic surgery and not necessarily feeling as though it's something that you would you know you you've, you've essentially expressed some interesting thoughts on them so i'm interested in what your thoughts are today on plastic surgery um especially as it's an increasingly normal thing yes and uh, i decided not to do anything yeah. and you know sometimes i look at other people and say oh maybe i should have but i really i'm glad i didn't because i like to see what i become mm. and and embrace who i am but of course i mean you know i will do anything to you know to massages and facials <laughs> and anything like that but i don't i i made the choice of not changing mm -hmm. well the massages and facials are doing an incredible job you look fantastic so well, <laughs> oh you do come on um so how conscious were you of sexism and patriarchy when you were working in the, when you first started working in the fashion industry well actually i i i didn't and it's only really recently it's it's fairly recently that i've realized how you know bully men can be and I, in a weird way, I realized it almost more now with the Me Too movement mm. than the original movement. But what is unbearable and not acceptable is that women don't have equal pay. Mm. I mean, you know, equal pay this year is, um, I think it was March 24th, and they calculated. Um, so in other words, if you took a year the woman wouldn't be paid until March 24th mm. in order to be equal. And that is incredible. I mean, that is crazy. Mm. It's absolutely insane. Do you feel as though, I mean, that's the present day situation. So do you feel as though much progress has been made um, compared to when you were starting out? You know, the, the, progress, the progress for women is, is we think we do and then we go back. And so it's very important not to give up. So Vogue's editor, Diana Vreeland, was a big supporter of your work when you were starting out. Would you say there was a sisterhood at the top of fashion during that time? I don't know about sisterhood. She was a lot older than me and she was incredibly intimidating, you know. But she did, she did see something that no one else saw with those silly, you know, very simple little dresses. Uh, but I don't know about sisterhood. I would, I wouldn't dare calling her sister. She was way too intimidating. And how do you feel about, you know, I suppose the younger women in the fashion industry today? Do you feel, you know, that dynamic that you and Diana potentially had? Is that something that you were sort of doing with younger women? Oh yes, 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 absolutely. I, but also young designers. I was the chairman of this of the Council of Fashion Designer for thirteen years. So, you know, not just women, but mentoring in general. Yes. This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. 
Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Enjoying the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast? Share the literary love and be part of the future of the Women's Prize Trust by making a one-off donation to support our important work as a charity. Donations of all sizes help us to continue empowering women, regardless of their age, race, nationality or background, to raise their voice and own their story. Search for Support the Women's Prize to find out more. So your fourth bookshelfie is Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Can you please tell us what Cast is about and what Isabel Wilkerson means when she says the word Cast? It's about race, uh, really. And I I read that book. Actually, I did read it on audio, that book. And what I love the most about her is the way, I mean, her, her writing is so brilliant because she writes so, so deep and yet she stays so detached. Mm. So she has a certain detachment that that I found incredibly powerful. And, and you know, she's never emotional. She And I love that. Mm. That's, that's what I love the most about her book. Thank you. And you know how earlier you mentioned that, you know, it was in hindsight, to be honest, when you sort of were engaging with the Me Too movement that you realised how potentially um, sexist the fashion industry had been when you were coming up. Did this book potentially Mm. make you think more on your privilege in terms of white privilege and position within the system? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. And she describes it also like, about Indian, I mean, she really talks about caste mm. more than race, mm. and it's, and it's, and I, of course, I am so not like that. I really believe that people should all mix, mix, mix. The more we mix, the better. And uh, you know, my children are half Jewish and half, you know, aristocrat, mm. and uh, I believe in mixing. But what what really struck me about that book is her dignity and her strength and her, she never, you know, you feel like she would never get watery eyes. You know, she is, and she, there's a certain detachment that is so powerful. Mm. Owning it is accepting who you are. So accepting it, but also detaching yourself from anything that's like shame or insecurity or all of that. And I guess that now that I'm thinking about it, looking back, I guess that that in a weird way is the common thread of all of the books that I've told you about. It's all about, you know, being strong. And I like that detachment, you know, it's, um, I don't know, I guess there's a, a common thread between all of these books and all of these women. So in your latest book, you encourage women to own their imperfections in order to make them an asset. What would you say are your own imperfections and how have you been able to own them? My imperfections? Oh, my God, I have so many. No, no. I mean, I mean, listen, I mean, you know, for me, it started with, I mean, anything from curly hair, you know, that took me so long to accept to 
to accept anything, being diagnosed with cancer, doing, I mean, all of the things that happen in a lifetime that are not pleasant. And you say, okay, well, we got to own it. Or, you know, facing the pandemic and having to close, you know, most of all my stores and things like that, that are very, very difficult to do, but you just have to own it. You just have to do it. And once you own it, then, you know, you deal with it. And then other things open up. And sometimes those other things are, are you know, better. And then you turn around and say, oh, my God, I can't believe it. It all started with a bad thing. But whatever, what, what, what I like about this book is that, first of all, I was going to write it as a prose book. You know, somebody, they asked me to do this book as a book of, you know, uh, share my wisdom and share my mm-hmm. advice and blah, blah, blah. And then as I wrote it as, as a prose, I thought it was so boring and, uh, and condescending. And that's when all of a sudden I, I made the list of all these words. And then within the words, whether it's a short definition or a little anecdote, or sometimes it's serious and sometimes it's fun, but it all leads to the same thing and owning it. And, and I, I really, I mean, I'm quite proud. I mean, I've done other books before, but this is like, I'm almost embarrassed to call it a book. It's like a little guide. It's just, you know, words that you can keep next to your bed and you open anytime. And what is wonderful is you could read it to children, you know, and, and it's really, and as a matter of fact, it's the generation X, uh, X no, Z that is really reacting very much. They love it. I didn't know that when I wrote it, but I can now understand why. And would you say that owning it is something that you've had to learn to do over time? Or is it something that you've always been quite good at? I didn't know. I I mean, I guess I knew it without knowing it. You know, it, it, the whole own it is very recent using that word. What like when people ask me, what did you want to do when you were growing up? I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew the kind of woman I wanted to be. I wanted to be in charge. And then when people ask me, who do you design for? I say for women in charge. So in charge was much more present. It was like the umbrella of everything I did, of the DBF awards, of when I celebrate all the things I do for work, for women. And But I realized that, uh, first of all, in charge could be aggressive and I have to every time explain it's not aggressive to be in charge is a commitment to ourselves is owning who we are and then all over and over and over as I was describing more this in charge and turning it into a movement that's when I realized that all the things I say always end up with own it you know which in French is assume and the and so this book originally was supposed to be called In Charge and then it turned into mm. Owner. And you've spoken about how much it's resonating with Gen Z. And I think that's been what's so you know integral and central to your legacy, just the fact that you've managed to remain so timeless throughout and relevant throughout. And what advice, I suppose, would you give to having that sort of timeless success and being able to speak across generations? Because it's not something that, many people can do i i don't see the difference very much with you know i even children i treat children like grown up always do and uh, and me i'm an old woman now but i'm still so i think that 
when people ask me who is the DVF woman, I think the DVF woman is the woman that I became when I was 28. Because at 28, I became the woman I wanted to be. And so I had pretty much touched everything. And so that woman, that spirit of being on your own, on being in charge and all of that, that is what stayed in me. And that that woman is still in me, even though now I have the other woman with all the experience and everything else. But the the core of the core of, of the woman is the same. Mm-hmm. It's a woman in charge, a woman who owns it. And that's what gave me a lot of satisfaction, personal satisfaction too, when I finished this book, because coherence is so important to me. Like, you know, the books in your library, the food in your in your refrigerator, the kind of friends you have, you know, that all reflects who you are. And and so what I like about this book when I finished it is that it was so coherent. So it's like a weave, you know, every word says the same thing and it, it can weave into a fabric. Mm. Thank you so much. Another thing that I think is very integral to you as a person is philanthropy. And I'm interested in why it's so important to you. And when you first realized that it was something there was something that you could do um, to make a big difference and to make that part of your work. You know, philanthropy, when you're young, when I first came here and people talk about philanthropy, it's very terrifying. You know, it's um, it's a little bit like landscaping, you know, Ooh, I, you need expert. I don't know what to do, you know, or it's being a volunteer in the hospital, which I couldn't do. Um, but then you re- then you you understand you know you know what you're interested in and you know where you can help and then philanthropy becomes part of who you are. I don't like to detach it from who who we are, and that's why you know it's about compassion, it's about empathy, it's about sharing what you know in order to make others being the women they want to be. So it's all linked. I mean, it's not you know oh this is my philanthropy versus this is the it's all one big, uh, one big uh, fan. And we're on to your fifth and final book, Shelfie, this week, which is Blowout by Rachel Maddow. Can you tell me about yes. this book and why you love it? Well, it's about, it's about the uh, energy, you know, it's about Oklahoma and the fracking and and it, but it's not so much what it is about, but what I love about Rachel Maddow is she is angry and she's an activist and she talks about it and she's loud and she's not afraid. And, and so what I, the reason I choose that book is because of activism and not just activism about equality for women, but activism in terms of, of, um, uh, injustice. And I think that the activism is very, very important to fight inequality, abuse, and violence. That's what I like about that. Mm. And, you, you know, you spoke, you've spoken about, you know, how she's angry and she's loud and she's, you know, unafraid to discuss these issues. But she's angry in a very intelligent way. She's not just angry at she because she proves her point. She does research, but I love her voice. Mm-hmm. I love her voice, and that's again 
all the women that I gave you, all these authors, they all carry the flag. They all carry the flag of freedom. You know, the survivor, Simone de Bale, uh, Simone de Beauvoir carries the flag, Gloria Steinem, you know, mm. um, Isabel and, and now Rachel, they all carry the flag. And it's the flag of freedom. There's so much going on in the world. I mean, there always has been, but I think with social media and the conversations we're having around activism and injustice, it feels even more um, prevalent. Um, what one issue, despite there being so many, would you say you feel most passionately sort of angry about and want to draw attention to right now? Oh, well, I hate the fact that, you know, this this fake, truth i mean you know mm -hmm. I, it's very important that we do not lose the value of truth because if we if we we lose the value of truth then we've lost everything yes, definitely and there's been a lot more focus recently in the fashion industry around um you know sustainability what do you think the industry needs to do to ensure you know the planet for future generations well i think that consumer consumerism went so far you know and we have to think we have to we can't just do sell 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 things that people throw 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 i mean my excuse i mean um, I, when people talk to me about that and my fashion is that somehow i create clothes that people don't throw away I mean, you know, they, they're always the best sellers in any vintage dresses. If you go in a vintage shop, you will find a dress that has already had three gen three owners, mm -hmm. three generations, and it's still sold the same price. So um, but I think that, you know, to to take care of our I mean, we we, we take everything from nature. We eat everything, we we empty the soil, we take the minerals, we I mean, you know, so obviously we cannot continue to do that. Mm, absolutely. And is this, is that something you think about even more, given the fact that, you know, you're a grandmother? Is that something that, you know, I suppose the future of the planet, does that feel like a, a more important conversation, um, given the fact that you are a grandmother? Of course, of course, of course. Yeah. Do you feel like your grandchildren are more politically um, active? Yes, um, yes, okay. yes. I would say that my 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 grandchildren who are now almost at, you know eight nineteen twenty mm. and twenty one they are definitely more politically correct and politically engaged than the generation before them for mm. sure do they involve you in it ever oh yeah yeah no no we're very we they carry the flags too oh, that's good <laughs> so you've said before I am now in the part of my life that is my third act what do you mean when you say that and what do you hope to achieve in this your latest stage of life well i mean it's my third act because i am an older woman and uh, and therefore i am at, at the if i'm lucky at the sunset of my life and uh, so what is important for me now is to leave uh, you know i have left my personal legacy with five grandchildren and two children and, and, you know, telling them and leaving them as much knowledge as I have with my brand. I try to do that too. And, but what is really most important right now for me is to use my voice and my knowledge and my experience and my connection and my, and my uh, resources in order to help 
others. And uh, that's why I write books and that's why I talk to you and that's why I repeat the same thing over and <laughs> over by hoping to, you know, inspire others and, and, um, and you inspire people not by, oh, yes, she's successful. You inspire people by telling them about your vulnerabilities mm-hmm. and about the obstacles and about that because everyone can relate to that. And uh, so, you know, it's to pass on the flag. <laughs> Thank you so much, Deanne. So I have one last question for you, which is if mm-hmm. you had to choose just one book from your list as your favorite, which book would it be? And why would it be your favorite? Mm. This is the hardest Mm. bit. I probably would go to the first one, to Simone Weil, because the survivor, because her story is my mother's story, even though my mother didn't become a politician, but I took over. And and, and it's, it's, it's the story of a woman who survived the worst and who turned around and became a mother and a politician and a voice for women and everything. Thank you so much, Deanne. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Yomi Kay, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Head to our website, www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk, where you can discover this year's shortlist of six incredible books. Please rate and review this podcast. It's the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time.